pressure to delay the school year. There are just many, many questions that all need answers for. Why teachers believe a September deadline might be too much to ask. Another victim hit by spit. I just slathered my entire face and neck with hand sanitizer. How a good Samaritan stepped in to help. And Vancouver loosens the rules on drinking in public. Probably people are doing it already anyways. I'm actually not in favor of it. Why not everyone is toasting the new pilot program. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We're going to start with pushback against the province's education restart plan. Opposition which could delay the start of the school year. With so many details still to be worked out, the Teachers Federation says the timeline is too tight. And as Richard Zussman reports, parents are also grappling with the reality of a return to full in-class learning. Hey, I like it though. What'd you do for your It's birthday? a staple on the calendar. The Tuesday after Labor Day means school's back. For 2020, the head of the BC Teachers Federation wants that to change. So we think there's a multitude of reasons why it makes a lot of sense to delay the start of the school year. The province announcing a cohort plan on Wednesday where students will be in learning groups of up to 60 for younger grades and up to 120 in high school. The BCTF raising these issues about the plan. A lack of time to adjust to a new school system. A lack of time for training with PPE and new cleaning measures and worries about the spread of the virus over the Labor Day weekend. There's going to be a lot of unexpected things come up and a lot of problems that will need to be solved. We will uh, do what we need to do to have a strong restart. There are a few options for parents who do not buy into the plan. They could decide to keep their kids out of school for the entire year, keep them registered and send them back when they are comfortable. They could also decide to deregister their child, to send them to private school or do formal homeschooling. But in that case, in a busy catchment, they very easily could lose their spot at their school moving forward. I would encourage parents to, you know, think about the, the education pathway they signed up for their child. They've been placed in a really impossible situation where if they choose not to send their child in person, it sounds like they will be forced out of school altogether. You got, I've got you. There's extra concern from kids living with disabilities, those that are vulnerable and those more susceptible to the virus. I don't think those kids are ever going to catch up if they have to be out of school for a year. We're not saying that every child has to be in there. That That is not what the plan says. The plan says the aim is to support every child in um, a classroom setting as much as we can. But teachers and others hope the specific plan of how those children will be supported is worked out before these doors reopen. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Meantime, officials in Ontario have released their back-to-school plan. Elementary students will return full-time. Their classes will not be broken up into smaller groups. Secondary students will take part in a mix of in-person classroom attendance and online learning. All students in grades 4 to 12 will be required to wear a mask while on school property. All right, let's take a look at the numbers today, the COVID-19 numbers for BC. We've got 29 new cases, which means our total is now 3,591. No new deaths to report, thankfully, so that number holds at 194. Five people are in hospital, only two in ICU, and 3,155 people are now considered recovered, leaving us with 242 active cases. And Keith Baldry joins us live now with more on some new travel restrictions 
Keith, the people in Haida Gwaii were concerned, and it turns out those concerns were warranted. Yeah, that's where one of the outbreaks is located, Chris. So today, uh, late this afternoon, uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farmworth invoked his powers under the state of emergency, banning all travel to Haida Gwaii, for, except for non, uh, for by non-residents. If you live there, of course, you can go back home, but nobody who is not a resident of Haida Gwaii can go there while this emergency order is in effect. Essential goods and services will be allowed to go in there, uh, and uh, the government's also uh, seconding staff people to assist communities there. It's going to be controversial because of the fishing lodges there that have uh, clients that come from outside uh, Haida Gwaii. That will not be allowed going forward. Now, that's one outbreak there. Public health officials are concerned this weekend, being a long weekend, we could have community exposure events, such as we saw in Kelowna, when people gathered in large numbers at parties, indoors or outdoors. Adrian Dix, the health minister, addressing those concerns at the, brief those concerns at the briefing today. I think people have to look at those situations look at parties, particularly indoor parties, which may happen on a BC day long weekend or on any Friday and Saturday night or other nights, that they should look at that, look at those kind of events and not go. And if there are events where everybody's invited, of course somebody at the event needs to take the responsibility for potential contract facing purposes of identifying and writing down everyone who's at the event. Community transmission, the big concern. Keith, what's the latest on the cases out of the blueberry processing plant? Yeah, that's located in Abbotsford, Chris, and the numbers are getting quite serious. It started with 15 employees. The latest number is 59 people there have now tested positive for the virus. There are many people who are required to self-isolate now because they're in contact with those uh, positive cases, and the testing investigation will continue. So that number is going to get higher. About 300 people work there, and it's going to be more than 59 at the end of the day. We'll see how it goes. Hoping for the best. Thanks, Keith. The B.C. government is making changes to a controversial B.C. ferries policy involving priority boarding. Beginning tomorrow, priority boarding will no longer be given to people traveling to their primary residence. The previous policy of priority boarding for residents caused a lot of frustration for other passengers who would sometimes miss several sailings. Giving priority boarding to residents of ferry sailing destinations uh, had become a bit of an issue for us over the last little while as we started to see traffic come back. Uh, and certainly our uh, folks at our terminals and on our vessels, our frontline staff, were starting to hear that uh, this was frustrating, not only for those customers who were arriving at the terminals, um, but certainly on the vessels as well. Vehicles carrying essential goods and services will continue to get priority boarding. A crackdown is coming for some Americans who have apparently been using the so-called Alaska loophole to enter Canada. Starting tomorrow, Canada Border Services Agency is implementing tighter restrictions, hoping to reduce the risk of exposure to COVID-19 from the U.S. Americans hoping to get to Alaska can no longer do so through the Peace Arch border crossing. They can only cross into B.C. through three points of entry, Abbotsford, Kingsgate or Asuyas. They'll be issued a hang tag for their rearview mirror, identifying the date they will depart. And they'll be barred from driving through national parks, leisure sites and tourist locations. Anyone found breaking the rules risks a fine up to $750,000 and possible prison time. 
course, we're delighted with that the federal government has taken that the step. That uh, you'll know that the premier has been a strong advocate for such action. I think it's great. I think that's a really helpful uh, step, um, and it is something that we uh, that I'm thankful that has put in, been put in place. Well, just a few weeks from now, Vancouverites will be able to legally crack open a cold one at select city plazas. Vancouver City Council unanimously approved a pilot project to permit drinking in four designated areas. But it's not exactly a street party. Nadia Stewart has more. It is a change being met with mixed reactions. Do you have to be drinking all the time? Can you not have a good time? without drinking. We've got to keep it under control, but I think it's a good idea on a day like this especially. Not everyone can handle the responsibility of drinking beer in, in, in such places. Now that the city of Vancouver is allowing drinking in designated public spaces, not that everyone is interested. I'm not sure if it's the best thing to do. I mean, especially here, it's where you have family, kids, and you know, people just gathering together to have a nice time. Probably people are doing it already anyways. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess the only difference is that they don't have to hide it in bags anymore. Council approved the pilot project Wednesday, which includes four locations. Lot 19 Plaza between Cordova and West Hastings, the Butte Street Plaza, Camby and West 17th, and the Vancouver Art Gallery. Concerns were raised by Vancouver Coastal Health over the message a move like this sends in a culture where research shows binge drinking is a problem. Vancouver police also voiced concerns about safety. But supporters of the idea point out other jurisdictions have already been doing this. There's this nanny state mentality in Vancouver that's been around for quite a while at the park board and at council. Former Vancouver City Councillor George Affleck says it's disappointing the city took so long to make a decision he says it's even more disappointing. The park board won't allow the same until next year. If you go to any park, certainly in the downtown area and along the, the water, you see people having their picnics, they've got kids, they're running around, they're having a beer. What's the problem here? Just loosen up, chill out, and let people have a drink on the beach or anywhere around where they feel comfortable. The new rules come into effect August 10th and run until October 12th. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Now, visitors inside the Vancouver Art Gallery will be required to wear masks going forward. Beginning tomorrow, all members of the public as well as staff will need to have a mask on at all times within the gallery. People with a valid medical reason and children under five are exempt. Masks will not be provided for visitors, but they are available for purchase. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team is now involved in the case of a gruesome discovery in a Burnaby Towing Company yard. Human remains were found in a car that had originally been discovered on fire last week. John Hua tells us why it took so long to find the remains. Outside Mundy's Towing, it seems like business as usual. But at the back of this Burnaby lot, the Forensic Identification Unit is investigating a grisly discovery. It's bizarre. You wouldn't expect it to be somewhere here. It's just kind of right by where I work. Burnaby police were first called to the tow yard on Wednesday after human remains were discovered in a burned out vehicle. That's when real one Saliman said he first tried to pick up his car, but stumbled upon a crime scene. It told us we couldn't go in because there's a bunch of cops doing uh, and forensic and they're doing DNA and uh, swapping samples and stuff. He said uh, there was a shooting in the car. Adding to the complexity of what is now a homicide case, 
the fact the vehicle was first found a short distance away on Meadows Avenue a full week earlier at around 11.30 p.m. on July 22nd. Stuff like this usually happens, like, but not like often, you know what I mean? Like, especially in like this area. IHIT is now leading the investigation, explaining in a statement, the vehicle sustained such significant damage that police were unable to immediately complete a thorough examination. The vehicle was subsequently taken to a tow yard in Burnaby to allow the hazardous gases time to subside prior to further inspection. On July 29th, a closer examination of the vehicle revealed evidence of human remains inside. It's an industrial area, lots of film studios around here, so usually everyone just kind of does their job and goes home. It's kind of scary. Work is being done to hopefully identify the victim. Police say it appears the incident was targeted and the public is not at risk. John Hua, Global News. Another person is coming forward tonight claiming they were intentionally spat on in downtown Vancouver as police admit they've seen a spike in similar incidents. Catherine Urquhart has more on the worrying trend and whether it may be part of a bigger problem in the city. I was shocked. I was completely shocked. Carolyn Yu is still processing what happened to her in Gastown Monday night when she was spat on by a stranger. We noticed that there was a man behind us who was kind of walking around this way, coming towards us, and he was kind of rattling the business windows, and then he came around and uh, spat in my face. So, the owner of Pigeon Restaurant was nearby when the assault happened. saw a guy basically with, like, garden shears, uh, basically start attacking the uh, De Pepe window. Then I yelled and kind of ran across the street and then uh, pursued the guy for a few blocks. Carolyn is the second woman to come forward this week to report being spat on in Gastown. A man ran up to me right into my face and um, called me a bitch. And I don't know where he was trying to spit, but I turned my back and the spit landed. On my, on my back and arm. That suspect was arrested soon after and faces an assault charge. Police acknowledge there have been more assaults involving spitting. Since COVID in early March, we have seen an increase in people spitting on other people. And this is an assault. We're asking anybody who has been spat on to notify police so we can investigate. Both victims and Brandon Grassuti say crime in the area has increased. Yes, it is getting worse, but it's getting worse for the very people that are, are traumatized. Uh, and as a result, you know, a gentleman like that just needs help. The VPD say statistics don't indicate an overall increase in crime in the downtown core, but acknowledge not everyone files a report. Carolyn Yu says she tried to report the assault on the non-emergency line. I was on hold for over an hour, probably an hour and 15 minutes, and I just gave up. In light of the incidents, police are urging anyone who is assaulted to call 911 so that officers have the best possible chance to make an arrest. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Vancouver's wealthiest residents are going to get some new neighbors, and some of them aren't happy about it. City Council's bold move to approve new high-density rental units in a community of multi-million dollar mansions in just over a minute. I'm going to ask you again Thank because you no, no, nobody, nobody believes you. Prime Minister Trudeau endures a grilling over the We Charity scandal, his side of the story later on the news hour. And a stirring tribute to departed civil rights leader John Lewis coming up. 
Right now, though, Vancouver City Council has approved a rental building proposal in one of the city's oldest and wealthiest neighborhoods. The four-story, 81-unit project has been widely criticized by neighbors. But as Jordan Armstrong reports, council's nearly unanimous decision may be a preview of changing times ahead. Welcome to Shaughnessy, Vancouver's creme de la creme neighborhood of leafy trees, high incomes, mansions, and soon, 81 units of rental housing. Do you think this project is going to change the neighborhood for better or for worse? It'll be worse because it'll be a lot of traffic and more people. And She declined to give her name but says she's lived in Shaughnessy for more than 40 years. So this is not appropriate. We're only near Granville Street. We're not near like the Canada Line or whatever. Wednesday night, City Council voted 10 to 1 in favor of a four-story secured market rental building at 32nd and Granville. The two mansions there now will be torn down. I just think about the opportunity that that affords people and that half of this city are renters. Some see this as a dismissal of the old idea that certain parts of Vancouver are off-limits for affordable housing. I think in a way the mask is off. Uh, exclusionary zoning designed to keep renters and the poor out of the neighborhoods where the good people live. You know, that's not 21st century Vancouver, and hopefully council is going to understand this, that we've just got madness uh, throughout the city. He hopes Point Grey and the UBC endowment lands will be next on the upzoning list. Meanwhile, back in Shaughnessy... You're going to find that it's going to be not a, a pleasant place. I mean, you know, our taxes are out of this world. Well, I think the neighbors didn't do themselves any favors. You know, you heard people saying, why, I live in a beautiful mansion. I shouldn't have to live next to renters. Uh, just crazy, crazy uh, entitled language. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A popular North Vancouver hiking area has reopened, even though a black bear suspected of biting a 10-year-old has not been caught. Lynn Headwaters Regional Park and the Lower Seymour Conservation Reserve were both closed for much of the last week. As conservation officers tried to locate the bear that attacked a young girl last Friday and may have charged another hiker on Tuesday. There are still posted warnings in the parks to be extra cautious, not bring food into the area and keep dogs leashed. A lot of people are outside in this hot weather. Surprisingly, no temperature records were set today, even though it probably felt like it. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with more on how humidity played a role today, Christy. Mm-hmm. So humidity is what makes it very tough for our bodies to regulate the temperature. So that's why we talk about Humidex levels, because it really is so important for everyone's safety to understand how hot it feels like. So look at Metro Vancouver, 25 degrees on the left there. But with the humidity, it felt like 32, a stretch of about 7 degrees, let's say. So very, very hot with that humidity. And this humidity is also going to affect us again tomorrow. I'll show you how long it will... How long we expect it to be hot in our region and what the humidity is going to do in terms of a risk of thunderstorms in parts of the province tomorrow. Important information as we head into a long weekend. All right, thanks, Christy. Anti-mask demonstrators under investigation. <laughs> the unwanted hugs that got them into trouble later. And journey to the red planet, what scientists hope this mission to Mars will reveal.
Good evening, clearing a stalled vehicle over here at the Queensboro Ridge, northbound just before mid-span in the right lane. The damage is done though, traffic is backed up solid from Highway 91 on the approach. For 47 years, Kermat Collision and Autoglass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a problem at the Queensboro Bridge. A concerning privacy breach for donors to a local charity, BC Cancer Foundation, says hackers held the personal information of thousands of donors for ransom. The cyber attack hit one of their third-party providers back in May. And as Paul Johnson reports, there are many questions about why it took so long for the breach to be disclosed. Who wouldn't feel good about making a donation to help fight cancer? Many British Columbians have done so. And now some of them have had their personal information subject to a data hack. This attack uh, impacted uh, a data file uh, containing a number of client databases, including the BC Cancer Foundations. The BC Cancer Foundation, which is the fundraising arm of BC Cancer, announced Wednesday that some of their donor data was compromised because of a hack into a third-party software company they use. The Cancer Foundation says no banking or credit card information was involved, but names, addresses and other personal data of donors may have been stolen. The data file contained approximately uh, 632,000 records, so those would be individual donors and corporate donors and event attendees from past years. That third-party company is U.S.-based BlackBot. They specialize in software that helps nonprofits do fundraising. They say they paid a ransom to get the data back and are confident it's now secure. But there were questions about the timing of their disclosure. The hack happened in May, and privacy protection laws in some jurisdictions say that's supposed to be disclosed within 72 hours. B.C. doesn't currently have a disclosure law like that, but the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner says they're now calling on lawmakers to pass one, and they've opened a file on the hack. As for BlackBot, they refused to answer questions from Global News Thursday and referred us to a statement on their website, which says in part that they follow industry standard best practices. This kind of thing happens all the time. Ken McAllister is a BC tech entrepreneur who says given what's known about the nature of the data, people probably are not at risk, but are right to be wary about who gets to be the custodian of information about them. That's a really difficult thing for consumers to deal with. I mean, you really don't know where your data is ending up in some cases. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. And on the topic of technology, the provincial government has flipped the switch on its Clean BC plan, announcing its rules to make all new vehicle sales by 2040 electric. The new regulations follow the Zero Emission Vehicles Act that requires automakers to meet increasing annual levels of electric vehicle sales. By 2025, they must reach 10% of new light-duty vehicle sales. By 2030, that number's 30%. The province also announcing a new advisory council made up of stakeholders in order to provide input on some of the new policies. Among those celebrating the new plan, 
Among those celebrating the plan, a First Nation community in B.C. The Osuyas Indian Band boasts the first fast-charging electric station in the South Okanagan. Through a partnership with Fortis B.C., the band now has two charging stations to provide a vital link for clean travel through B.C.'s interior routes. They are the latest in a 23-station network across the southern interior as Fortis B.C. continues to expand its efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. With climate change, um, having electrical charging stations all over Canada is important. And we're very proud that the first ones in on First Nations reserves occurred on the Sioux Indian Reserve. In order to choose an electric vehicle, people need the assurance that they can charge if they want to go visit beautiful areas like this, and this will allow them to do so. The 50-kilowatt stations are located along Highway 97 in Oliver and Highway 3 near Spirit Ridge Resort. They cost about $9 for a half-hour use. All right, up ahead, will Justin Trudeau fall victim to the three-strikes rule? What happens in baseball when you have three strikes? How the Prime Minister handled an often raucous grilling over the We Charity scandal. Also tonight, Donald Trump floats an idea to delay the U.S. election. How that idea is being received on both sides of the aisle. look at traffic southbound towards the Massey Tunnel. Look at all these lucky people with air-conditioned cars down there. Hardly any delay for southbound traffic. Two lanes in both directions. Kermac Collision and Autoglass have been family-run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. Interest you in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. What happens in baseball when you have three strikes? I should have recused myself knowing uh, the connections between my family and the perceptions around this issue. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the hot seat today for a rare appearance before the House of Commons Finance Committee. The PM faced some tough questions about the WE charity and why it was chosen to administer the Canada Student Grant Program. Here's Global's Mike LeCouture with more. The Prime Minister's testimony was at times tense, and some of the exchanges with opposition MPs were testy, as Justin Trudeau laid out what he knew about the awarding of the nearly $1 billion contract to WE Charity, and his family's connections to that organization. That information has been publicly shared, but I will highlight... Well, then tell me what mother, it is. Uh, my mother How much? Has, uh, has Just the dollar worked. figure. For 90 minutes, the Prime Minister admitted he should have recused himself from the decision to award the contract to We Charity, saying it was presented to him and his chief of staff as a binary decision. Either it's run by We or it doesn't get done. Still, Trudeau says he asked public servants to make sure the Canada Student Service Grant couldn't be delivered by a government-run organization. When uh, I received uh, the information that the WE Charity was being chosen, uh, recommended by public service to deliver the student grant program, uh, I pushed back. I wanted to make sure that all the I's were dotted, all the T's were crossed. 
That wasn't good enough for opposition MPs who noted Trudeau's family connections to We Charity. His mother, brother, and wife have been paid for appearances at We events, and MPs highlighted the fact that twice before, Trudeau has been found guilty of breaking the Conflict of Interest Act. In the process, you broke the Ethics Act a third time. What happens in baseball when you have three strikes? 30 seconds to respond. As I said uh, to Canadians a number of weeks ago, uh, I should have recused myself. Later, Trudeau's chief of staff, Katie Telford, was also grilled about how the contract was awarded. We could have done better. We could have done more. We could have added yet another layer of scrutiny to avoid any potential perception of favoritism. As a result of all of this, the prime minister told the committee the volunteer program never got off the ground and likely won't be a part of the student aid package this summer. Mike LeCouture, Global News, Ottawa. Three former U.S. presidents and other notable speakers paying tribute to Rep. John Lewis during his funeral service today. The civil rights activist being mourned and celebrated in the Atlanta church service before being laid to rest. Former presidents Barack Obama, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton also spoke at the funeral. During his eulogy, Obama reflected on Lewis's exceptional life of activism while connecting it to current political rights and protests for racial justice. But even as we sit here, there are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the Postal Service in the run-up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. U.S. President Donald Trump floating the idea to delay the November 3rd presidential election. But Trump has no power to do that, and the notion drew immediate pushback from Democrats and Republicans alike. Facing a surging pandemic and struggling in the polls, President Trump today for the first time is suggesting the November election, just 96 days away, be postponed. Tweeting with universal mail-in voting, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. Warning, it will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote? I don't want to delay. I want to have the election. But I also don't want to have to wait for three months and then find out that the ballots are all missing and the election doesn't mean anything. But the president has no power to delay a general election. The Constitution says it's up to Congress to set the date. And with Democrats controlling the House, that will not happen. There's also no evidence of widespread voter fraud due to mail-in balloting. President Trump's suggestion immediately dismissed even by top Republicans. We'll cope with whatever the situation is and have the election on November 3rd as already scheduled. No presidential elections ever been delayed, even for the Civil War or World War II. Democrats are accusing President Trump of trying to distract from the U.S. economy, just posting its worst drop on record, worried he's laying the groundwork not to accept the election's results. Can you give a direct answer? You will accept the election? I have to see. Look, you, I have to see. No, I'm not going to just say yes. Meanwhile, one of the president's campaign allies, former pizza CEO and Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain, today lost his battle with coronavirus. 
The 74-year-old was hospitalized after attending President Trump's controversial indoor rally in Tulsa, but it's unclear where he contracted the virus. President Trump today remembering Kane as a powerful voice of freedom. A journalist who was accosted on live TV by two men at an anti-mask demonstration has now filed an official complaint with police. Global's Raquel Fletcher shows us what happened and the backlash. TVA reporter Carrie Ann Barrasso was in the middle of a live report when these two anti-mask demonstrators wrapped her in a bear hug Sunday outside the National Assembly. Since then, the Quebec City reporter has received a lot of public support, says her lawyer, and Wednesday she filed a formal complaint for assault. She's uh, happy to see that so many people uh, supported her. The decisions she took, it's not about public opinion, but it's important, I think, to send a message to everyone that uh, the journalist needs to be respected. He says journalists have been assaulted like this before, but COVID-19 and the fact that two men were not wearing masks and not social distancing adds another element to the incident. She was very shocked about what happened. She was very insulted uh, about, uh, about all of this. And uh, she didn't like at all the, the, the behavior of, those, of these men. The Quebec City Police Chief says the men have already been identified, but now that they have Barras's testimony, the police have opened an official investigation. On Meanwhile, the Sûreté du Québec also arrested a man who made online threats against the journalist following the incident, something her lawyer says she might face more of now that she's pressed charges. She's a strong woman. She's a very brilliant woman. And I think that she will be able to, to go through the process. Qu'est-ce qu'on fait avec cette frange de la société qui semble se radicaliser? Public Security Minister says it's a small minority of Quebecers who aren't following public health directives and are putting others at risk. She says the government is considering steeper penalties for egregious violations like this one. Raquel Fletcher, Global News, Quebec City. The third Mars mission in two weeks got underway today as NASA's newest rover, Perseverance, launched from Cape Canaveral. Go Mars 2020. Release. The $3 billion rover is expected to land on Mars in February and then spend about two years searching for evidence of life. 20 cameras will be used to search and drill into the planet's surface to collect rock and soil samples for labs on Earth. If all goes according to plan, those samples should arrive back on Earth by 2031. In Health Matters tonight, a devastating day of overdose calls in Kelowna. Paramedics responded to 12 calls Wednesday. That's four times the daily average. BC Emergency Health Services says Kelowna averages about 75 overdose calls every month, but so far in July, they've seen 133. Health officials are advising users to not take drugs alone. Still to come, the challenge millions of women are accepting. Why the meaning behind this Instagram movement isn't exactly black and white. And the Canucks shake the rust off in their first game in four months. The biggest controversy to come out of it later in sports.
Air Transat announced it's canceling most of its winter flights out of Western Canada. The airline is suspending all southbound routes, including flights to the U.S. for the foreseeable future. Impacted airports include Vancouver and Victoria. Domestic routes between Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal will continue to operate, as well as some connecting flights to Europe via Toronto. Passengers will automatically receive a full refund. This is a U-turn by the company. It previously only offered credit on flights cancelled as a result of the pandemic. How blessed are we to live where we do when the weather is like this? Who wants to go anywhere? And Christy Gordon has a look at the forecast <laughs> as we head into that long weekend. Christy? It's almost tough to go anywhere, really, Chris, because it's so hot, you don't want to move. Uh, you know, this sunshine and heat has actually uh, prompted a air quality advisory to be issued. So here's a quick look. It's for the east parts of Metro Vancouver, north and south, and also through the Fraser Valley. So what's happening because of that sunshine, it actually converts low-level pollution into ground-level ozone. So we're going to see that low-level ground, sorry, ground-level ozone today and into tomorrow, very likely, as this heat continues. Now, tomorrow, we will see a bit of a reprieve from the heat, but those of you in the interior continuing to be hot. So you saw Humidex levels today at 40. You could see 40, 41 tomorrow. So much harder for you in the interior for tomorrow. And then it's into Sunday that you'll really start to see a reprieve. So still very hot for the next two days, whereas the South Coast will begin to see a reprieve uh, tomorrow. And that's because we'll see a little bit more cloud cover, still a lot of humidity expected tomorrow. And that's that's going to prompt a risk of thunderstorms across our region. That's tomorrow morning with that chance of showers. And then it shifts further inland later in the day. And there is concern because there's so much heat and humidity out there that we could see some severe thunderstorms. So that's from the Fraser Canyon region right up into the Caribou, Central Interior and Chilcotin region. So again, that's tomorrow through the day, late morning into the afternoon hours. So those are the regions that have that risk of thunderstorms down through the south, Merritt included. Hope included, Whistler included as well. And for our region, we will likely see thunderstorms, but in the non-severe type uh, scenario. So keep your eye out for that. If you hear lightning, sorry, if you hear thunder, you want to head indoors to keep your family safe. And I'll leave you with your central windows weather window, which is a stunning shot of three little Virga clouds. That's rain that uh, starts to rain and then evaporates before it hits the ground. Looks like either a little jellyfish or maybe... Um, uh, like waterfalls. Pretty cool, though. Thank you so much to Brad for that. I That's like how it. I like my rain not hitting the ground. All right. Uh, let's check in with Squire. Canucks first game, well, of the second part of the season. Yes. Well, the one exhibition game. They didn't win, but Travis Green wasn't all that upset about last night. Yeah, you know, uh, actually, I liked, I liked a lot of our game. Only one goal for the Canucks, but some are wondering... Why didn't Jake Vertanen get the play? Mm. And the origins of the challenge accepted phenomenon on Instagram. Is it losing the meaning that launched it? The mystery over Jake Vertanen. <laughs> and where was he last night? Well, he was there. Mm -hmm. He just wasn't allowed on the ice. <laughs> uh, if you want to start a heated debate with a group of Canuck fans, all you have to do is throw out the subject of Jake Vertanen. Should he play or not? And you will get an argument started. Last night, he didn't play in the Canucks' only pre-tournament exhibition game, even though Vancouver was allowed to dress an extra forward. He does have speed. He's big. He can score a bit. 
A lot of people have shotgun over his goals, but he can also be a defensive liability, and we know he has had his moments when he's not been in the kind of physical shape that Travis Green would like. And ultimately, it's Travis Green who decides Jake's fate. That masked man is Jake Vertanen watching his teammates' final tune-up. Travis Green didn't give a detailed reason why Jake is a spectator heading into their series against the Wild, but you still get the message loud and clear. I just went with the lineup that I thought gave us the best chance to win, plain and simple. Vertanen obviously did not impress the past two weeks at summer camp. He was on the outside looking in early on, losing his spot to Zach McEwen and the now healthy Michael Furland, who the Canucks signed as a free agent to be the gritty playoff performer they need and a preferred option over Vertanen. He's just he's so big, strong, um, loves playing in the playoffs, loves playing this type of hockey. And he was, uh, I thought he was good tonight. I mean, you know, he was hitting guys, skating with the park, creating chances. And um, he's going to be really valuable for us going forward here. I liked his game. It seemed like his conditioning uh, was up to par. And uh, his, his feet, thought he looked quick. Of course, in any playoff, the biggest factor is goaltending. Jacob Markstrom played his first game in over five months and for the most part, looked solid. It was nice to be out there. I mean, it's been a while. It's, I don't know, since February or what, when we played Boston at home. So it, it's been a long time, but it was, you know, it was, it was nice to be out there. And I felt like the longer the game went, that, you know, more details and, and stuff like that start to fall into place. The Canucks will have to be much better defensively around Markstrom than they were the last month of the season back in February, March, when Vancouver surrendered the most shots per game in the league in that stretch and had the second worst goals against at 3.50. But it's literally a new season, and the Canucks are itching to get going. Obviously, there's still things to work on, but we're ready to go. We can't wait to play. Everybody's really amped up. Everybody can't wait for Sunday. Um, you know, there's going to be a couple days of practice here, which we're going to get better. And, I mean, we're going to be ready to go for Sunday no matter what. Here's Solidarity. Nathan Gerby on the left is 5-4. Sedeno Chera, who's locking arms with, is 6-9. Columbus and Boston, exhibition hockey. Gustav Nyquist scoring there, 4-1 the final for Columbus over the Bruins. Hung Jin Ryu of the Blue Jays against Washington. Lourdes Gurriel Jr., three after it, is finding the grass. Toronto scores, it's 1-0 in the first. But then Michael A. Taylor with the score 2-1 Washington. This is a two-run blast. 4-1 at that point, 6-4 the final. Washington over Toronto. Toronto's games against Philadelphia this weekend have been postponed because two members of the Philly staff have COVID-19 positive tests. I mean, it's your call, but yeah, yeah. I just I don't see any fire ants in the sense. That's right, Bryson DeChambeau. You have to leave your ball there. There are no fire ants. He tried to get the rules official to let him move it, but on this hole, he did take a double bogey because of supposed fire ants, but he is uh, three under par, which isn't too bad after one round of the uh, WGC St. Jude event. Brooks Kepka, he was looking good despite a sore left knee. Birdie putt, eight under par. Ricky Fowler was on top of the leaderboard for a while, six under, so he's second, two back. Mackenzie Hughes was minus two, Nick Taylor minus one, Adam Hadwin was plus three. There you go. All right. Thank you, Squire. Up next, why the latest social media challenge flooding your feed isn't so black and white. 
Well, you may have noticed a deluge of black and white photos on social media recently by celebrities and other Instagram users in support of women's empowerment. The trend is called Challenge Accepted, but what is the origin of the movement? Why is there pushback? Global's Emanuela Campanella explains. Black and white photos of women have probably flooded your Instagram feed in recent days. The hashtag currently has around 6 million posts on the platform by women, famous and otherwise, who have posted a post picture of themselves and then challenging other women who they want to uplift to do the same. But where did this campaign start and why are some people pushing back? It originally started out as a social media effort to bring awareness to the public about male violence against women, particularly in Turkey. In mid-July, protests broke out in Turkey after 27-year-old Pinar Goltekin was allegedly strangled, burned and murdered by her ex-boyfriend. Shining a light on the country's high femicide rate and government efforts to roll back legislation designed to protect women from gender-based violence. In 2019, 474 women were murdered, mostly by partners and relatives, the highest rate in a decade in which the numbers have increased year over year. And activists are sounding the alarm for 2020, as numbers are expected to be even higher due to the coronavirus lockdowns. Representative Yoho put his finger in my face. He called me disgusting. There is also speculation that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's recent speech on the House floor, where she called out Representative Ted Yoho for making crude remarks against her, might have led to an increase in social media posts emphasizing female empowerment. Overall, the origin of the challenge has dominated the conversation on social media, with some claiming it goes as far back as 2016. The so-called challenge has recently sparked criticism, with some people arguing it doesn't really support any concrete cause, and rather is an excuse for a meaningless glamour selfie. Unfortunately, with this uh, pushback on the movement, we're seeing um, more focus both in social media and on uh, news media, uh, more focus on women disagreeing and arguing and feminists arguing. So I'd, I'd like to see that change back and really get the focus where it needs to be. Emanuela Campanella, Global News. And now you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, last word on weather before we go, Christy. Sure. So another hot one today, tomorrow, I should say, but not like today. We are going to certainly see more cloud cover with a slight chance of an isolated shower or thunderstorm, mainly in the morning and early afternoon tomorrow. And then we're right back into sunshine and heat, everyone. Your weekend looking pretty nice, especially for a long weekend. Mm, Stay cool in the meantime. All right. Thanks, Christy. I'm off for the long weekend, so good luck to you all. Lucky you. (laughs) See you tomorrow, folks.